This talk was given by Danica Shoan Ankeli at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a senior monastic in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Vast ocean of dazzling light, marked by the waves of life and death. The tranquil passage of great calm embodies the form of new and old coming and going. That's the um, beginning of the uh, dedication for a memorial service. And I um, have always found it sort of singularly arresting in the liturgy that we do. And um, that image of that vast ocean of dazzling light marked by the waves of life and death is so potent, so vivid. The ocean and the wave, it's all water, one vast body. But here I am, me, my body, apparently distinct and separate. There you are, you. And we don't often see our ocean nature. We can glimpse it, we can sense it, we can uh, cultivate a kind of active faith in it. But when we're going through our day-to-day, mostly we're really concerned with me. We're fixated on the form of the wave. And that ocean, our Buddha nature, which is awake and clear and luminous and ungraspable, responsive, tender, loving. It's the nature of all things. A lot of you know um, that I was with a friend who died just a few weeks ago. Mm. And that I was actually there as she took her last breaths and left her body. And it was quite an experience. I've never been present for a death like the moment before. And I don't know that they're all, I mean, I, I, I do know that they're all not like this um, from, from what, you know, nothing's like anything else. And then also from, from what I've heard. So she was kind of in a conscious place and we were in relationship She was definitely doing her own thing, but I felt like I was very much there supporting her as she was like preparing to leave her body and then actually letting that release go. And the experience in the room was so um, uh, energized by the reality of that occasion, by what was happening. It had such a palpable feeling 
And um, my experience was, you know, kind of falls into that category of experiences we have that go beyond words. But I definitely felt like, oh, like, oh, she's, she's returning. I felt like I was just watching it happen. So what was left later as uh, we were washing her body, Zuiko was there with me when, when she died. This is Yoshin. For people who don't know, Yoshin passed away a few weeks ago. Um, when we were washing her body, Zuiko Sankai and I, 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 it was so clear, like this is, like Daido used to use the word, I guess it's a, a Zen phrase, the skin bag. And I've always found it a little distasteful. It's like so like kind of like raw and edgy, like skin bag. But I was like, oh, that is so apt. Like this is her skin bag and she is gone. She's not in it anymore. Her like essence has like returned to that vast ocean. So, you know, this question that um, I feel like uh, as, a, as, a, as a person we ask this kind of question and as a, uh, a person in a moment in time, we can also ask this question, are we part of something larger, right? Are we part of something larger? And of course the answer to that is yes, you know, and in a lot of different ways. There's kind of the cosmological, astronomical, like you're just like a speck on a speck on a speck in like the vast expanse of the universe, which is a totally mind-blowing thing to even try to conceive. Um, socially, you know, we're just like one person in a, in a, in a society, in a country, in a world. Historically, this time that we're in, even though it's like the whole of our lives is going to be just like a blink, a flash, nothing on the scope of geologic time, historic time. And then like spiritually, of course, it's also true. Our sense of ourself as a discrete being is really just like just like a bit of a thread in the entire garment of being. And so, you know, I suppose there's help um, for me at times in taking a larger view, appreciating that all things come and go, and that everything is changing. And um, the problem is it's not always changing into something better. So even though you can say like this, this time with its difficulties and its challenges, it will, it will change. We don't know actually where we're going. As practitioners, we can appreciate that like whatever arises doesn't just come out of nowhere, right? The wave is arising out of causes and conditions. Even the thoughts that seem like they just pop up out of nowhere in our mind? Like, have you ever tried to, like, follow back a totally random thought? It's like it's always coming from something. 
Sometimes you can't see it, but sometimes you can like, oh, oh, buried deep, right? The seed was planted already. So we're always planting seeds. That's the other part. And they're ripening. And of course, this is true for us as individuals, and it's true on a larger scale. (coughs) Everything's arising and manifesting in accord with karma, cause and effect. That's true, and also true is that our personal experience of the world is largely arising from projections, our thoughts, opinions, belief, judgments that we're imposing or seeing as, a, as though through a filter, seeing the world through. And this is like kind of a, um, a good thing in a way because it means that everything's workable. Because just as everything's arising out of cause and effect, we're completely capable then of planting the seeds and tilling the soil to create, you know, to, to, in other words, giving rise to cause that will have effect. And of course, the shadow side of that is that we're doing that all the time and we don't know it. And so we're just like creating, creating, creating blindly and um, sometimes a lot of harm or just, um, uh, I don't know, chaos, non-intentional action. But as we begin to study the mind and see into ourselves and how things work and what's going on, we can start to see, like, oh, the situation is workable. And we can see, oh, like, we can heal. We can do things to take care of, like, our ragged, harmful, loose ends of karma. You know, there may always be a scar. We can't control things, but we can actually address and take care of. And so we can use these same forces to um, actualize good. There's this really creative part of being a person and having a life. And there are so many teachings about this. You know, the paramitas, the perfections giving rise to qualities and energies, cultivating those potentials within ourselves. That's like creating good. Or the precepts guiding our action and behavior in ways that will manifest and give rise to good. And so within all of this, there's this tension between like the very interior, very personal path of waking up, of realizing ourselves as Buddha, And then the realization of that ocean needs to come out into the world. This tension, right? Is it personal? Is it communal? 
Is it private, the stuff of my heart? Is it political? A call for justice? Everybody's heart. I was speaking with a friend the other day, and we were talking along these lines, and she said, you know, everything is political. We were talking about some little decision type thing here at the monastery. Everything is political. And then I was thinking about that more later and thinking, is everything also spiritual? We have a teaching that everything is mind, right? So another way of talking about the ocean might be like mind, capital M. And then we have a teaching that mind is ungraspable. So things are going to get a little crazy. (laughs) Because that means the nature of everything is ungraspable. It's not fixed. So at a time like this, like we have the extraordinary benefit and... um, Uh, responsibility of having exposure to teachings like this. And so I say this to myself first and foremost when I look out at the world and feel overwhelmed and depressed. That is a very sort of myopic view, right? It's coming from a very worldly sort of like, here's my little wave perspective. It's really not the view of a person of the way. And things may be like all crazy in a jam, but like I should also know like nothing is fixed. Everything is workable. And like I can take action. Albert Einstein said, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. Which is like super helpful to take in when we're in a problem mind state, right? Like you got to like make a leap, make a shift. You can't just keep circling around the same carousel, So whether we regard the problem as our individual suffering or as the suffering of the world, many beings, you know, whatever our view is at any particular moment, it's like how do we come from a higher level of consciousness, a different, an awakened consciousness, the consciousness that recognizes the ocean, that isn't just fixated on the wave, First, I feel like it's so important to recognize the kind of false dichotomy um, that speaking this way creates, right? So wave and ocean is a very dualistic view. And inside and outside, dualistic view. And part of our practice is to um, recognize that and see that there's more and there's a whole body of teachings on another way of seeing. One of the um, 
moments that has really stayed with me from this past Ango when Shugen Roshi was doing the Mountains and Rivers Sutra um, was when he was talking about the teachings of the five ranks, Master Dongshan's five ranks, which are basically um, teachings on the on the relative and absolute and the non-dual nature of reality, this sort of interpenetration of the relative and the absolute. Another way, perhaps, of thinking about it would be the relative is the wave and the absolute is the ocean. And he said, you know, in, in practice and training, we're, we're like, I'm paraphrasing, so hopefully I'm not too far off. In practice and training, you just correct me if I am. <laughs> um, we're, we're always going back and forth. You know, we're trying to learn how to see, okay, the relative, the absolute, the relative, the absolute, back and forth. Does anyone remember this? Back and forth. He did this with his hand. Back and forth, like a leaf falling until we see it's one thing. In our zazen, to appreciate that while we have a lot of emphasis on um, developing concentration and learning how to quiet the mind, which is extremely important, that's extremely important in order for us to be able to see into the nature of mind. If it's just humming all the time, all we ever see, you know, we're constantly caught in the blur of our activity. But we can start to, you know, there's sort of the Zen sickness or a thing that you see like um, uh, critiqued in, in certain Dharma teachings about like quietism. And like we can like learn to quiet our mind but not actually be um, awake. And the way that I've been thinking about that recently is thinking about the way that our mind has so much power. Our mind has so much power, and are we also training ourselves in how to use that power, right? So when I mentioned the, the, the precepts or the paramitas, you know, to be able to cultivate patience or generosity, that is powerful, so powerful. Are we also seeing into the seeds, the things we're creating? It's like um, when Gokhan in his talk yesterday, was um, speaking about, you know, to see, to see, like, the the negative self-talk, to see it, and then to see the effect that it's having. So we're always using the power of our mind, but often we do it rather blindly and reactively, right? And sometimes we're skillful, and that's certainly... You know, anytime there's activity and, and, and change manifesting, anytime there's anything, we're using the creative power of our mind um, and our imagination. I so appreciated over our, our solitary retreat, the um, meditating for black lives in the driveway. Shout out to Taikyo for really making that happen. And um, I know that wasn't everybody's thing, and just want to say right from the get-go, like, that's totally cool. Everyone's got a different way of bringing it forward, you know. But for those of us who um, went out and sat out there, 
I didn't know. I was like, uh, I don't know. Do I want to? I, I, I was like, the idea of it was I wasn't quite sure. But man, when I saw everybody, I was like, whoa. And then when I took my own seat, I was like, this feels really correct. You know, so there's action that's like going to try to precipitate a change, you know, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people demonstrating, you know, storming the police precinct. And then there's action that we take within the integrity of our own body and mind as a sort of like creative arising, a manifestation, you know? So I don't think any of us thought we were going to affect political change, but you could feel the potency of what was happening. It was real. So I feel like there's this way that our um, creativity is being called upon to really come out of its box, both by COVID and by the racial injustice of our country. Not to mention a myriad of other ills that need to be addressed, but those two, the light is, is, is certainly shining on them very, very brightly. So in matters of the spirit, How do we affect this kind of transformation? How do we use this creative power? Liturgy is like all about that. And um, invocation in particular, you know, to call upon, to bring something to mind. And we we do it all the time in our liturgy here. Um, The four immeasurables that we're chanting in the morning and that we've been invited to actually hold images of beings in our mind, that's an invocation. And I don't know about you, but when I actually take that up and wholeheartedly do it, I feel its power. On our solitary retreat, the residents did um, our first ever all residents go on an individual two-day solitary retreat this past week um, in our various cabins and rooms and spaces. Um, we were offered some different practices to kind of round out uh, the day. So not just zazen, but practicing using an image, perhaps, or using a mantra, And there was that um, encouragement to uh, do an invocation or a dedication, right, at your altar when you started to state your intentions for the retreat using our own words. And Roshi talked about, you know, what is the power of hearing yourself say, during this solitary retreat, may I realize Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. It's kind of like a prayer. It's kind of like a prayer. And prayers are funny in Buddhism because we're not a theistic tradition. There's an excellent prayer that um, I uh, encountered and um, have, have used some myself. It's called, uh, it's by Gampopa, who's a Tibetan master. And... Um, Uh, one translation goes, grant your blessings that my mind turn toward the Dharma. 
Grant your, grant your blessings that the Dharma becomes the path. Grant your blessings that the path dispels confusion. Grant your blessings that confusion dawns as wisdom. And so, who are we praying to? Who are we supplicating? This is such an excellent question. We do a lot, actually, of devotional uh, practice in our way. And it kind of just like glides by without a lot of comment. But, you know, there's a lot of bowing going on. I don't think I need to tell you that, right? <laughs> um, Russell Rogers, who's a senior teacher in the Shambhala community, put it really nicely, I thought. He said, it isn't clear who is being asked to grant their blessings. But a good rule of thumb in Buddha Dharma is that even if there is a guru nearby, that teacher's mind is ultimately the same as yours and its basic Buddha nature. However, since we don't experience ourselves as Buddhas, we seem to need to experience enlightened mind as though it is external to us. So we supplicate enlightened mind as though it is outside. In other words, it's upaya. Here's the wave talking to the ocean. The wave isn't apart from the ocean, but at this time, it's just easier to see it as separate. We're not there yet. So it's skillful means. Skillful means. On my hermitage, I was... um, doing a little bit of study that sort of opened the door into um, the wisdom energy of the goddess, the sacred feminine. And um, side note, the sacred feminine is for everyone, no matter what gender you are. When we talk about like creativity and intuition and connection and embodiment, these are all sort of qualities, energies that we all have and can be um, imbued in the form of like a goddess. And I was thinking like, I wish we had more like goddess liturgy in Zen. (laughs) And check this shit out. Some of you may know where I'm going. Lakshmi, she is the consort of Vishnu, right? In Hinduism, Vishnu is like the god of um, everything, creation, the phenomenal world. And Lakshmi is his um, feminine counterpart, sort of the active presence. Um, She's also thought of as the goddess of light or wisdom and good fortune, And so, you know, if you think about the origin of the Dharma was in India. Um, And so as Buddhism arose, it was being blended. It was merging with the Hindu tradition that was already there. And that is what was brought, you know, to Korea, to China, to Japan. And so some of these deities were brought as part of the tradition. 
And so Lakshmi became in Japan Kichijo Ten. Kichijo, meaning auspicious heavens. So the Shou Saimyo Kichijo Dharani is a Dharani to the goddess Lakshmi. No shit. <laughs> now that has all been, you know, that's centuries, over a thousand years ago. So a lot has happened and things have changed and sort of her relevance to that chant um, uh, has certainly been eroded, so much so that I've been chanting it almost daily for many, many years and never knew about this connection. You know, and I don't know, will it transform my experience of the service? I don't know. I mean, yes, it already has a little bit. <laughs> but um, so, you know, Durrani, Durrani is like mantra. Durrani is considered like a longer um, format sort of mantra, meaning that the, the power of a Durrani isn't in the words or the meaning. It's in the sound. And Durrani's and mantras um, originated in Sanskrit, which is considered a divine language, the language of the gods, the language of like Vedic liturgy. Um, Sultram, uh, Lama Sultram, Sultram Alione says, you know, if you think about how like the Italian language has like the energy of Italians, you know, or German language has like the energy of Germans and German culture. Sanskrit comes out of a divine energy. And so there's a blessing simply in the sounds. And so these Duranis were to, um, uh, as I have learned, and, and probably many of you have also learned, you know, the point of the Durrani is the sound, that actually uttering those sounds has an effect, has an auspicious quality, the vibration, the energy. Um, and so to translate a Durrani is problematic because it was never actually about the meaning to begin with. And what's come down to us is, so there's the Sanskrit original, Right? Imagine there's an original Dharani or prayer to Lakshmi in Sanskrit that then gets transliterated into Chinese, from Chinese to Japanese. And so now, Nomo Sanmanda, this is a Japanese transliteration that's based on Sanskrit sounds. So to translate it doesn't really work. But some bold scholars have made attempts <laughs> going back to, you know, um, the, the, the sounds and the Sanskrit sounds that echo those and sort of trying to um, offer something up. And so I wanted to share, because I thought they were so delicious and interesting. And um, there's one that's by Robert Aitken, Roshi, and... Um, uh, goes like this. Praise to all Buddhas, the incomparable Buddha power that banishes suffering, the Buddha of reality, wisdom, nirvana, light, light, great light, great light, with no categories, 
This mysterious power saves all beings. Suffering goes, happiness comes, rejoice. And then this is a translation which is interesting because they took the Sanskrit and put it beneath the Japanese transliteration so you can sort of see like where the sounds have come from. This is by Shido Gensho, uh, an English, a teacher in Sheffield Zen space in, in the UK. Just double-checking. Yes, Shindo Gensho, Richard Jones. So um, the title, Sho Saimyo Kichijo, is the extinguishing of disasters with wonderful luck of good fortune, goddess Lakshmi, devotion. Okay? Adoration to the all-pervasive guru, Lakshmi, to the overcoming misfortune one, winning in the manner thus, Om, verily so, declare it, proclaim it, declare forth, proclaim forth, yes, yes, blaze, blaze, blaze forth, blaze forth, stand firm, stand firm, spread, scatter like stars, expand, burst to the forbearant, radiant ones, hail. Blaze forth, blaze forth, stand firm, stand firm. (laughs) So, um, you know, the energy of the show Saimyo can have that. And, and sidebar here, just want to say to everybody at home, we miss you in the chanting. It is not the same to have just 28 people chanting service, even at the end of Sashin, than like when it's like a full zendo and everyone's like all jarikied up. Um, so uh, more about that later. But anyway, um, yeah, the quality of it. And when we do it slow and it has that other very, uh, God, I mean, I don't even know. I don't want to hang a word on it. But when, when the energy's really filling, um, you know, that sense of this is a uh, invocation of benefit, of uh, calling forth for protection, for happiness, for the blazing forth, the expansion, the great light, the mysterious power. That comes through. That comes through. And um, one more. So when we do the... um, Jiryu mentioned this the other day. We were meeting about the liturgy book, and she mentioned this, and then I looked it up that when we do the um, Benzai Tenjinshu in the Hakuryasan service, which follows the show Saimyo, I might add, um, that Benzai Ten is the uh, Japanese evolution and creation of the Hindu river goddess Sarasvati, um, a goddess of wisdom, of protection, again, closely associated with snakes and dragons, so perhaps that's why she comes in at our Hakuryusan service. So we can give rise to qualities and states of mind. If I'm looking for goddess energy, I can give rise to that energy. 
And here, in a tradition like this, we don't have to make it up from scratch. We can use what we're learning. We can take what we've been given and water it so it can grow. We have to appreciate that whatever is inside of us is going to come out. And if we're looking at a world where it seems like it's sick, the tragic part of that is that that sickness is living in people, in beings. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and the um, transformative justice practitioner, Miriam Kaba, says, said, no one enters violence for the first time by committing it. Any person who's enacting violence has had an violence enacted upon them. If you think about that, I think it bears out. So when we look around at the world and see people, when we see what's going on, we're looking at suffering. And if it feels overwhelming, then we're probably at a distance and we need to come in close. And so one excellent way of doing that is by tending to our own suffering and appreciating that that is happening not in isolation. We're taking responsibility for our wave in the ocean. And to appreciate also that we have tremendous power, creative power and possibility and potential, and that we shouldn't be pinned or hemmed in by what's come before or what we've seen, that we have an opportunity to raise things to a higher level of consciousness. Everything is workable, nothing is fixed, so let's think outside the box. If it seems like we're creating something to invoke a deity, then I um, would, would bring forward the, the teaching that I received from Miyotai Sensei many years ago. I said something about like, yeah, well, if I do such and such, it feels like I'm making it up. And she said, yeah, well, in a sense, you're making it all up. I did a, a retreat the other day on Zoom, you know, a short evening seminar sort of thing on faith. And um, we had a, a chance, people had a chance to think about a time where they felt in contact with a feeling of faith and to share it um, in a small group. I did breakout groups. I was very proud of myself for <laughs> taking the risk and doing breakout groups on Zoom. And, um, and then uh, when we came back as a large group, I, a couple people shared sort of common themes that had come up in their small groups. Because I asked the question, okay, so if you've gotten in touch with that feeling of faith, what is it faith in? What is it faith in? How would you express that? And so um, a few people said, you know, faith that I am connected to something greater, faith in the universe whatever that means. And again, you know, everyone was sort of stretched by the linguistic challenge of trying to express the inexpressible. And what does it mean to say faith in the universe? And yet, like, it's a sense of faith in beingness, in reality, reality thusness, faith in Buddha. People said a life force, Faith in a life force. I thought that was so interesting. I was like, huh, a life force. I get it. 
I get it. Sharon Salzberg speaks about faith as a way, genuine faith, faith that's trust in your own deep experience as a way to leap beyond the endless loop of hope and fear. I hope this happens. I'm afraid that it won't. I'm afraid that this will happen. I hope that it won't. Around and around we go. And the teaching beyond hope and fear is a common Buddhist teaching. Right? Between those poles, we're in our little view. How do we open up? Genuine faith, Sharon Salzberg offered, allows us to open to the vast space of possibility. So we need to nurture that faith, to learn how to tap into it, to tap into it, and then to trust ourselves to act from it. In the 1960s, the uh, Cistercian monk Thomas Merton wrote an essay called The Christian World in Crisis, Reflections on the Moral Climate of the 1960s. And in his essay, in which he spoke about social injustice, racism, the threat of nuclear war, he wrote, the most important question is not what is going to happen to us, but what are we going to do? Or, more cogently, what are our real intentions? Intention, invocation, creating with the mind, the source, he went on to write, the acceptable answer to such crucial questions has something to do with love. Has something to do with love. How does this love arise? Only from one place. Only from one heart. I love that part in Gokhan's talk where he said, Something like, do we ever like look at a photograph of a group of people and say, perfect. That one's perfect. That one's perfect. And it cut me to the quick because I'd been going through Yoshin's belongings a few days earlier, and I found a photograph of like a family reunion. So it was totally like a large group of people. And I was totally like studying it and like having all kinds of thoughts that were not perfect. And that one's perfect too. It's like, wow. Love. I believe Roshi said the other day, love is just a big fat word. <laughs> Indeed. We get to make it real and find out what it is. It's like knowing you're a wave in the ocean. Love is knowing you're a wave in that vast ocean of dazzling light. And knowing that you belong to the ocean. And recognizing all the other waves. So we cultivate love by looking deeply into our present experience seeing its nature, seeing our own nature, seeing into this ungraspable mind. We get so stuck on our small self. So sometimes we have to 
invoke and open to love. I'm going to close with a um, poem, a devotional praise poem by Tsongkhapa, who's an ancient master in the Tibetan tradition. I believe he's the founder of the Geluk sect. And he has many, many devotional praise songs to different bodhisattvas and deities. And this is in praise of Vajra Sarasvati, Light of Wisdom, so Benzaiten. And it's a long poem, so I'm just going to read the very beginning, okay? May there be happiness. In the vast openness of the purest of skies, I write these stars of well-chosen words. Goddess of the moon, I beautify you. Open the night flowers of my mind. Your mind, bright as a million beams of pure light. Speech sweet as the unblemished melody of Brahma. Form as beautiful as snowy mountain peaks. Extraordinary wisdom goddess. I bow before you. When the dark night of ignorance has closed the lotus petals of wisdom of living beings, I think on your form as an unparalleled brilliance that transforms such unknowing into the light of the moon. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live-streaming all Dharma Talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.